This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Now, one of the things that fascinates me about working in the arts is that there's this myth of the, I know, the the solo artist, uh, the lone genius working in their studio, but so much of arts practice is about collaboration. Um, and whether that's um, a director collaborating with a group of actors or whether it's a couple of artists collaborating on an idea, uh, fusing different forms and, uh, and different visions. And I'm joined by two artists who've got a collaborative exhibition showing now, Kieran Begley and James Newen joined me to talk about their exhibition, Hell is Other People, which is showing at Gertrude Glasshouse in Glasshouse Road, Collingwood. Guys, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Richard. So in terms of uh, kind of let's just talk about how you met and why you decided to collaborate. James, I'll throw to you to begin with. Um, Yeah, so we actually met at um, art school at SCA in Sydney. Um, and while we were there, we were kind of like unsatisfied with the what what was on offer. So, <laughs> so, so yeah. So, so we actually, as a group of um, as a cohort, there were lots of um, other artists like Salotti and um, Consuelo and Consuelo. Yeah, Jess, and yeah, yeah and, and we all kind of like came together to kind of like try to learn about each other's practice. And then from that, we kind of like developed this kind of like curatorial collaboration together with Consuelo, um, Kieran and I. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was called uh, Curated Visits. But um, when, when James says we were dissatisfied, what happens when you go to art school is you have these dreams of things that will be great and fun. And, and then you get there and they actually just put you in your studio and get you to write and it's kind of boring. Um, and we were much more interested in each other um, and the fact that, you know, at, at a sort of medium career just past emerging, whatever the exactly where we fit. Um, James is probably a bit more advanced than I am, but um, you you really want to get to know other people's practices, and um, we just kind of set about doing that and setting up our own systems for doing that. Yeah. Well. yeah, yeah, and it's been a few years, so it's up until now that we're actually like making work together. So yeah. it's kind of cute. Why is it valuable and important for artists to have this kind of uh, dialogue with with your peers in order to encourage both your own creative practice but then a collaborative one as well? I mean, I, I think there's that weird lie that, that artists actually operate on their own. Um, like even if you go to a gallery, it's a collaborative process. You're talking about it with directors and, and actors. But for us, um, you know, you, you go into a, a space, you're either dealing with uh, the curators of the space or if that fails, you actually just go and beg your friends to come down and check it out, talk to them about the work. So there's that kind of lie that we've been kind of telling ourselves for a while that, that there's this independent artist concept. Um, not to say you don't do stuff in your studio, it's just when it comes to exhibition practice, it's it's almost always collaborative. Well, as you, may, you say, yeah, you've got the, the curator, for example, but then you might also have an exhibition designer kind of who is uh, coordinating the, everything from the colour on the walls to, uh, 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 to, to lighting in the gallery and so forth. So, yeah, it, it, there's so much more collaboration that goes on in the yeah. art world than perhaps people outside it realise. Yeah. But in this instance with Hell is Other People, um, you're collaborating on uh, works kind of inspired by the Nissen Hut, a yep. pretty ubiquitous 
kind of item which represents everything from military barracks where people are, their identity is subsumed into a greater whole. Yep. And Nissan Hut might also be a place where refugees are, uh, are kind of contained uh, historically or, or even in the contemporary world. Yep. Why use this kind of ubiquitous piece of, uh, of design uh, to kind of work on your art together? Yeah, well, well, I guess like ubiquity comes out of being the personal, I guess. So, um, my dad, when he came to Australia, like he was in a um, kind of like a refugee kind of processing facility, and yeah, he remembers these Nissan huts, and I kind of like got interested from that, and yeah, like looking further into it, I was like, oh, the Nissan huts were everywhere. Like they they were in refugee camps, they were used to house like. Um, Aboriginal communities, like in, you know, just just to kind of like shove groups of people into like controllable um, and kind of like out of the way places, and it's a very Australian thing to do. <laughs> I mean, interestingly, um, I came to this through James. It's a project sort of initially led by James in terms of the Nissan Hut, um, and I, I got that that ubiquity of design um, is uh, because it's good design. It's actually a really well made thing. It's it's uh, based on that kind of four by eight plywood sheet. Um, then you can extrapolate that out to a, a curve, and that curve we found out actually on the last trip to um, North Belmont. Um, or Belmont North, sorry, um, that uh, the the whole shed is actually a um, silo. silo on its yeah. side. Um, so they're just reusing the corrugated iron from other things. But it, it holds up, and that was one of the things that you were talking about, it holds up in heavy weather, though it deals with heat yeah. badly. And it lasts forever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly the 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 history of post uh World War Two migration in Australia, for example, and Nissan huts were uh, a big part of the the migrant camps at Bonagilla and places like that, yeah. uh, and continue, as you say, to yeah. to be used to to house refugees and elsewhere. And yeah, yeah, they may look kind of ubiquitous and all purpose, but clearly they're not. As you've referenced, the they might be fine in wet weather, but kind of the idea of baking inside one of those huts in a, yeah. uh, a yeah. high Australian summer, particularly if you've come from uh, a climate where you're not used to that kind of searing summer heat. Yeah. It must yeah, be a pretty absolutely. terrifying environment. Yeah. yeah. In terms of then taking your separate uh, visual arts practices and uh, collaborating on this project, talk to us about how you've uh, your different skill sets and, and interests have kind of united on this project. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it started with um, I was commissioned to make a short video for You Are the Prototype um, by Lauren Carroll Harris. And through making this video talking about the Nissan Hut and my family, I asked Kieran, who's a very good animator, to come in and help me with the project. And then it was kind of like an entrapment <laughs> from then on. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, yeah, I, the, the the good animator is more that I'm sort of obsessed with technical drawings and, and trying to, to work out most of my projects in a, a very clear, articulate uh, SketchUp and or AutoCAD way, depending on the, the uh, client or the place I'm doing it for. Um, but actually, for me, when we after, after doing that initial kind of diagrammatical kind of intro to, to the um, to the video about Nissan Huts in a broader sense. Um, when James sort of approached me about collaborating, one of the things that I thought that was important was that there is a very... Um, the, the videos you produce are quite um, emotional and soul-searching in terms of 
of sort of family issues or like like personal things. histories, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so for me, I actually took it on as a project to do a bit more of that. It's something, you know, like I'm, I'm interested in that kind of, you talked about the architecture of incarceration and using that as a kind of framework to, to look at the project. Um, and so I went down a sort of very strange rabbit hole. I've had great conversations with a lot of my family about Nissen Huts. Um, my stepmother, for example, uh, is a doctor and knows them as uh, in England they used after World War One. they ended up with a bunch of hospitals, um, learned a bunch of hygiene um, from separated buildings, all sorts of kind of really interesting things um, and also the military history. So I'm not sure if any of my family were involved, but they were probably the builders. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, what's actually really interesting in this process is kind of like the dialogue that actually is not exhibited. Like collaboration is about, you know, chatting and talking. And a lot of the things that came out of it was like kind of like looking at our own personal and emotional kind of like connection to these things. And sometimes yeah. it's quite dark. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, and, and I think that's what collaboration is. And it also interests me that... Uh, in kind of particularly in the uh, the visual art field, uh, a work might be labelled as by artist X, but six or seven other people have contributed to that project, such whether it's through moulding, casting, painting, animation, filmmaking, etc. So the fact that this has actually become a true collaboration rather than, uh, Kieran, just your work informing James's practice, but yeah. it being James's project talks about the organic nature of, of creativity as a whole. You yep. may begin with one idea and end up with something quite different. Yep, absolutely. Like, cool. yeah. And and one of the things is at the end of um, the, the first video for... You can spruik it. The prototype. Yeah, um. <laughs> for the prototype work. Um, James talks about the silence uh, that his father, when asked about the experience, this, this kind of really full-on silence that you get from that, um, was a trigger for me to then talk about those moments of silence I'd had. Um, so you're having these things where it's actually a dialogue through the work, where something happens in the work, you see it, you move on to the next bit where you respond, and and like you said, there's a lot left out, um, and you know you can't quite see it from all of the work. But a, a long trip to to Newcastle, visiting you know the family farm doing all of this stuff that, that really invested in each other's lives to figure out how the project would develop. Yeah. Now, if people head along to uh, Gertrude Glasshouse at 44 Glasshouse Road in Collingwood, what are they going to see? Are they seeing uh, stills, sketches, finished product of animation itself, a collection of everything involved? Like, um, yeah, so one of the, like, yeah, so I, I guess the project is kind of like extrapolating into kind of like history of Australia as an, you know, as a prison state. Hmm. So we start off with like convict history. And so the footings for the Nissan huts are made out of convict bricks that we took from Sydney. Um, the second part uh, is the little um, internment camp coin. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and people get to hold this coin and it's like money that was created specifically for internment camps um, during the First and Second World War when, you know, like they impo- imported um, prisoners of war from Africa and Asia and also um, took civilians who were Japanese, um, German and Italian backgrounds and locked them up and gave them this like fake money to like use while they were being held. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what they'll walk in and see in terms of that conversation is, is uh, what is it, 196 convict bricks laid out as the floor plan um, for an Hut 
overlaid onto the gallery. So in a sense, we're trying to we're asking people to walk through this kind of architecture um, and into um, into a, a space where there is this money, and then there's also videos to kind of inform what what they've just been through. Um, one of the videos is very slow and boring, um, <laughs> but there's there's an intention behind that. There's an urge to kind of talk about that kind of time spent and what what these places actually mean if you sit and think about them. And the fact that it's very easy not to think about the history of Australia, the history of internment, uh, and mm. even literally the bricks under our feet. If yep. I walk around uh, inner city Melbourne, for example, every now and again you'll see a chunk of bluestone that's got the convict arrow carved into it mm. uh, and a reminder that, yes, there were kind of convicts working in uh, kind of cutting stone here in Melbourne. When Australians think of convicts, I think they tend to think of Sydney, of, mm-hmm. uh, of Hobart, perhaps Newcastle or uh, yep. a couple of other places, but the fact that that history is under our very feet here as well. Yeah, yeah. like we, we do live in, you know, like um, a settler colonial state and uh, I guess it's really important for all of us to kind of acknowledge that history because what... Yeah, one of the things that really stimulated me to kind of, like, pursue this project, I guess, was um, how the alt-right um, United Patriots Front has actually captured the convict arrow as one of their symbols of, um, you know, the part, part of their his, historical identity, um, being proud of, you know, that um, white convict settler history because they were at one point kind of, like, um, the the marginalised. And because they were marginalised, that's how they justify their capacity to keep on marginalising other people. And and I guess it's really important for me as a recent arrivee to kind of like also capture these histories as well, because I'm like, I'm living from the benefits of colonisation. I need to acknowledge it. And I just can't leave it up to kind of like these fucking old right assholes to... <laughs> you know, like shape history the way that they want. I want to shape history how I want with my friends. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because it, it does step quickly into that. But I, I think one of the things that, that the first thought of it, when you said it's easy to forget, um, I actually don't think that's true. I think one of the things is that we live as um, individuals with family histories where we're actually inheriting a lot of problems from not talking about it. Mm. And that's one of those things where... You know, talking to the family, talking to my family about more and more of this stuff, being aware of the fact that we are living with sort of inherited problems and behaviours and the the more that that's talked about, even sadly in the form of um, alt-right, but that that it's talked about and the... And, and and processed so that it's it doesn't become a cycle and repeat because we are at the moment as a country, you know, actively incarcerating people still. So it's not like this history is one that we can walk away from and say it's gone. It's it's a continuing problem, and the fact that we haven't faced internally how how terrible that is on the individuals that that it's being done to is. Um, is I think part of the problem. It's, it's it's not acknowledging in our own history the the, the sense of of loss, uh, inherent kind of violence, all of the things that come with with depriving somebody of freedom. Yep. Um, and you know, that's I mean, in a weird way, that's uh, the the title of the the show. Hell is other people. It comes from Sartre's um, play No Exit, and you know, he imagines a hell where 
all you do is put people in a room together. Yeah, you know, stuck together. And and in a weird way that uh, that's the, Australia. <laughs> yeah, we, we found a way to to actually. Well, you know, he's talking about prison yeah. as a, an equivalence, but mm. you know, there there is a really interesting thing there that is not that complex a, a, a step to go. You know, we're doing this to each other. How can we come up with mechanisms that are better than this? Mm-hmm. Hell is Other People is currently showing at Gertrude Glass House, uh, uh, which is an offshoot of Gertrude Contemporary, 44 Glass House Road in Collingwood. It's on now until the 31st of August. Uh, and you can check out www.gertrude.org.au for more details. I've been talking with James Newen and Kieran Begley about their work. The exhibition again, Hell is Other People, on now at Gertrude Glass House until the 31st of August. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Thank you very much. Now, last year I caught up for the first time with the company The Danger Ensemble, uh, who had relocated from another city to, to be here. They're now pretty much permanent Melbourne residents, so we can ignore that side of the conversation that's already been hashed out. But uh, Let Men Tremble is the company's new work, running from the 14th to the 25th of August at Theatre Works. I'm joined by the artistic director of The Danger Ensemble, Stephen Mitchell Wright, and one of the members of the ensemble, Alexandra Hines. Welcome both of you to Triple R. Thanks, Richard. Hello, Richard. So this is a new work which is inspired by The Scarlet Letter, which was what, published in 1850. It's an exploration of guilt, revenge and redemption in colonial America. We live in a what is still effectively a, a colonial society in many ways. Was that one of the part of the impetus to use this work as a springboard to explore a range of ideas? It, it was. I think... There's, there's a tremendous amount we have in common with, with New England and that part of the world. Um, in terms of the foundation of society, the adherence to government and God and church. Uh, the, the book talks about the first, in the Scarlet Letter, they talk about the first things they built being a church, uh, a prison and a graveyard. And th- there's something about that that resonates, I think, with Australian history as well. Yeah. And, Alexander, I understand that part of the other kind of inspiration and themes for uh, the new work, Let Men Tremble, is the the Me Too movement and its impact on society as well. Yeah, I think also a large part of colonialism is the patriarchal ideals that always come with it. Um, And so this piece is exploring not only... um, sort of a revolt against the patriarchy um, but also a voice to those the other um, and gives that voice the to the other and how um, how we are dealing in this disenfranchised state what we want from that place um, and what a revolt against these ideals that exist in our society would look like um, yeah. Well, certainly with uh, Me Too and its uh, kind of ramifications, there was plenty of men trembling, I'm sure, uh, uh, afraid that their kind of past misdemeanours uh, would, would come to light. Uh, in terms of using that as a springboard for theatrical ideas, talk to us about how you went from 
some of those ideas to the work that is opening next week at TheatreWorks? Well, it's a pretty big process. We began developing right at the start of January with a, with a big intensive and then shifted to a part-time process. But we started with the novel. Well, actually, we started with the Demi Moore film, <laughs> to <Whoa>. be honest. <laughs> uh, so we brought people in and we, we responded to that and then we started jamming on, on ideas in the novel. And we always start as a company with reacting to the stimulus rather than trying to present or or adhere to the, the stimulus but having conversations and effectively often we find ourselves having arguments with stimulus uh, and I like to work from that place of argument and, and disagreement rather than cohesion and agreement and the work throughout our development we blow right out and go into lots of different places and then begin to find links and conversations between things so the work moves through an exploration of of the, a lot of word, so the word of God, the word of literature, the word of Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, the word of the law, and investigates what voices are at the heart of that and the stories we tell and how the stories we tell and the names we remember form our sense of, of cultural identity at this moment in time. And the work traverses a lot of different forms. Uh, it's quite eclectic in, fo- in form. There is, there is the presence of... The Scarlet Letter as as a play base, um, but it departs from that quite severely as as the women and non-binary performers revolt against that form. Alex, in terms of the 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 work that the Danger Ensemble present for uh, audiences who aren't familiar with the company and its aesthetic, uh, as apart from eclectic as a word to describe the company's kind of form and tone, how else would you describe the company's kind of kind of style? I guess uh, Alex is well positioned well. to answer this because this is the first show Alex has done with the company, yes. but has watched a lot of the work previous to now. Yeah, so I think what I really loved before working with the company, what I really loved was I was watching theatre that wasn't made for subscribers kind of thing. You know, this is theatre where people are getting their voice. It's coming directly from the artists to the audience and it's not through this diluted... um, sort of funnel that requires all these criteria be met or outside influences censoring what is to be said. I like that the message is so direct and clearly resonates with the audience. Um, Stephen talks about making theatre of disagreement, which I think is interesting to watch because you're watching something that incorporates and um, illustrates the complexities um, of any sort of existence in this case. Um, Yeah, giving a voice to the disenfranchised or those who um, have been oppressed by the patriarchy. But in in all cases, I feel like what the Danger Ensemble do is really um, encapsulate a very human experience in a way that moves between the absurd and um, the visceral um, which I find very interesting. Also, the design is always ridiculously good. I always <laughs> just look at it like, what? how did you do this moving painting on stage? That's good. <laughs> Anything to add to that? Oh, I think I'm the worst person to ask. Um, our, our work, we try to not know what our work is. We try to always discover what our work is with each show. I think we operate under the assumption that we don't know how theatre works or what acting is or what storytelling is for our time. And whenever we start a new project, we go, well, what is the zeitgeist? What is the world right now? What is the function of art, specifically theatre, in that world? And how do we create that now? 
when I saw the Hamlet Apocalypse last year at Theatre Works, one of the things, I, apart from the design was very, very striking, the, the visual look, the sound design as well, I also loved the fact that it was a del- deliberately abrasive work of theatre. Just as the audience might start getting comfortable, suddenly there'd be a, a blast of noise or a, uh, we'd be confronted with ideas around how a play is constructed and presented, for example. I get the feeling that as an ensemble, uh, you don't want audiences to be comfortable. You want audiences not to be made deliberately uncomfortable, but to be on edge because they can't predict perhaps what is going to happen next. Yeah, I think that's that's totally accurate. I don't I don't like as an audience member sitting in a theatre and feeling like I know exactly what's going to happen energetically or, or rhythmically from the beginning to the end. I think as consumers of art or entertainment, we, we want to be surprised, we want to be challenged, we want to be shocked. Um, and not shocked for the sake of shock, but shocked in the sense of, of awe and surprise. And I didn't expect that angle. I didn't understand where that idea came from, but I've been moved or affected in ways that I, I didn't anticipate. So absolutely, we, we do want to keep people on the edge of their seats. And I'm not particularly adverse to being abrasive. Now, in terms of taking a work uh, like The Scarlet Letter as a, as a point of inspiration, it's almost quite a radical novel for its time, given that uh, uh, Hester Prynne, the, the female protagonist, has born a child out of wedlock and is not guilty about this. She's branded as an adulteress and forced to wear the scarlet letter, the A, as a, a sign of shame. But she kind of embraces her so-called guilt, so she's quite a fascinating kind of character in that regard. Where does the kind of... How do those kind of themes then manifest in kind of uh, let me tremble as a work well i think what's interesting is yes she did she has the potential to be a very interesting character but because it's written by a man and narrated by a man uh what they instead did was take what potentially could be a very good three-dimensional character and just not and instead (laughs) made (laughs) dimsdale um one of the men in the play made him the protagonist and then created another um, antagonistic character who was a male. So basically Hester Prynne lucked out and how that translates now is we are looking at what happens when you take a what could be a very interesting, very three-dimensional story for a female um, or anybody else on the outskirts, gender non-binary and queer, and what happens when you give them their story back. You, and that's sort of this... Um, a catalyst for the movement throughout this piece. I, I would actually also say it, it also goes what happens when you don't give them their story because they'll take it back. Yeah. And, Stephen, if we're talking about uh, addressing Me Too, uh, addressing patriarchal issues and so forth, the theatre is an intensely hierarchic and often very patriarchal structure in which the artistic directors of most of our companies, certainly most of the major theatre companies, are almost entirely uh, kind of... Uh, kind of cisgendered kind of uh, white men, uh, you yourself um, identify as male. Uh, it's kind of what kind of position does that place you in? Because you're the director of this show as well as the artistic director of the company, but simultaneously you're trying to, to an extent, let go of the reins of power. That must make for an interesting uh kind of place to work from uh, theatrically? It was absolutely a consideration and a priority for me going into this work that I not be safe from the trembling. And rest assured, I do get called out well and truly within the show. But I think a big part of that is 
for me is being able to be transparent about those conversations and going without question there, I have a privilege and a power, not just in the industry, but in the room within the company that I can't ignore, I can't deny, but it shouldn't come as a result of my gender and any invisible biases I have as a result of that, I deserve to be called out on. Any conscious biases I have as a result of that, I should absolutely be dragged for. But I think we've, we've talked about it a lot and it's, we haven't got it right. There is still, that, that imbalance is still there and I will, I will own that. Um, and constantly questioning how much of that is me going, okay, well, as the director, I have to stand at the front of the ship and go down with the ship. I have to make the calls. I have to steer this experimentation to the place of failure or success or a combination of, uh, and how much of that is assumed because of my privilege and my gender identity. And, well, I can't take away the fact that I have received privilege and that's a large part of that is how I got to this position, but I can try to take that and use it for good, not evil. <laughs> yeah. And with the rest of the cast holding him to account? Yeah, so it was a part of the devising process um, where Stephen said, he said from the very beginning, um, I'm not excluded from this, so we're, it's a revolt against the patriarchy, a revolt against theatre itself because, as you said, it is very hierarchy, hierarchical and a lot of male figureheads. Um, and so Stephen made it very clear from the beginning that he was... Um, included in that um, and it did come into the devising process um, how we would revolt against the director and how um, what that would look like um, from our perspective and yeah it definitely does feature in the piece and I think um, it's an important thing to be transparent about that and I do um, take my hat off to Stephen for that being that I am giving this message but I'm not going to be the mouthpiece, um, sole, sole mouthpiece for you, which is exactly what has been wrong. I think what time. we also did is we said instead of having the conversation around the table and going, oh, let's call this out and get sorted out on our end, we said let's have that conversation in the work. So if I ever say I said, can you please do a sexy dance to this, rather than say, no, Stephen, we're not doing a sexy dance, I asked them to do the task and fight with me in the task. We didn't actually ever do that. Oh, we I did actually talk, do that task, but yeah. it's not in the show. I just sort of talk, took that as every time we do th something physically gruelling, I can simply just lie down and not do the exercise. That's which not true, Alex. <laughs> was me misinterpreting that. <laughs> if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Alexandra Hines and Stephen Mitchell-Wright about Let Men Tremble, the latest work from The Danger Ensemble, which is running from the 14th to the 25th of August at Theatre Works in St Kilda. Uh, uh, the... Promotional material for the work, the design, the look of it, it looks amazing. And that kind of rich visual aesthetic is something that certainly uh, I have already come to expect from Danger Ensemble shows, even though I've only seen one, because I've certainly seen imagery for uh, quite a few of them over the years. In terms of the content of the show, it's also, we're not talking about a well-written play. This is a devised work featuring, what, uh, song, dance and, and other kind of theatrical and perhaps even meta-theatrical elements. Yeah, absolutely. There's three, three, three live songs sung by the performers. Yeah. There's countless 
movement slash dance pieces, some of which the actors really love doing. <laughs> I would call it an endurance task, not a dance. It's a dance <laughs> task. Um, and, yeah, there is there is elements of well, well-made play in there. How well-made is questionable um, and is questioned in the work. And... Yeah, it traverses tremendous different forms, I think. Great. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Let Men Tremble by the Danger Ensemble is running from the 14th to the 25th of August at Theatre Works, 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda. Uh, previewing on Wednesday the 14th of August, which means cheaper tickets, uh, and then uh, kind of uh, running th- through the rest of the season. Tickets are $45 full, 37 concession, 30 preview students and under 30s. You can book at theatreworks.org.au or by calling 95343388. That's 95343388 or theatreworks.org.au to book to see the Danger Ensemble's Let Men Tremble, running from the 14th to the 25th of August. Stephen and Alexandra, thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks so much, Richard. Thank you. Triple R. Now, uh, back in June 2017, the Melbourne Theatre Company, MTC, launched a new $4.6 million development program for playwrights called Next Stage offering opportunities for Australian writers, uh, residencies and commissions to ensure that new Australian uh, work is created and developed for main stage performance by MTC. It's a great initiative. Uh, And coming up, the uh, first play to benefit from the next stage commissioning and development process is having its premiere. The play is called Golden Shield uh, and its writer... Uh, Anjuli Felicia King joins us in the studio now. Felicia, welcome to Triple R, and lovely to have you here. Hi, thanks. Nice to be here. So, uh, it, is it a little bit daunting or intimidating to be the kind of the vanguard of this development <laughs> program? Um, I mean, it just feels. I feel very lucky and humbled by it. Actually, um, you know, we've been developing this play. Uh, I've been developing this play on and off for about two years. Um, and MTC has been integral in sort of like the ongoing process of redrafting. Um, so it just feels like the right home for the play more than anything else. And I feel very strongly that, you know, uh, this is the right place and time to be doing it. Uh, and I'm about to go into the next, uh, cohort of next wave people as well, which is really, really exciting. (laughs) Now, uh, the play is on one level, it's a a legal drama, Mm -hmm. a kind of corporate legal drama, um, about uh, a Chinese dissident and the young lawyer who is prosecuting a kind of Silicon Valley giant on their behalf. But it's also a story about a a more personal drama, about two sisters kind of working together uh, and the differences uh, between them. How important was it to make sure that the play was not just a narrative, a simple straightforward story, but a number of intertwined stories and characters? Yeah, so, um, you know, the issues that I explore in this play are not easily reducible issues, things sort of like the lack of overreaching international law, sort of issues around tech gov- uh, corporate governance in the tech industry. So it was really important to me to humanize it and actually ground it 
uh, in a more sort of uh, eternal human question about the nature of communication and translation uh, and how uh, on multiple fronts we sort of fail to communicate effectively as human beings uh, in familial relationships, as lovers, you know, um, in the professional and in the personal sphere. So, yeah, it felt really important to me to ground this sort of like story based on uh, a number of real court cases in a very human drama. Yeah. Now, the notion of exploring the failure to communicate in a medium which is effectively about communication, yeah. <laughs> actors standing on stage addressing one another with the audience observing, there's some interesting challenges there because you want the, the narrative on one level to be accessible, to be communicated to the audience, but nonetheless you're exploring the, the challenges around yeah. communication. I mean, yeah, it's sort of the beautiful paradox of theatre, you know, um, is that you are... Uh, asking the audience to come with you on this journey uh, in the full knowledge that there's a sort of like inbuilt paradox into the medium, right? Where where this drama is playing out in front of you, but it's inherently fictitious um, and it's so palpably fictitious. Uh, and so there's actually a, a central device in the play, which is this narrator figure called... Uh, who's just the translator uh, and he not only translates between Mandarin and English, but he also translates like context and subtext uh, and uh, acts as the sort of conduit um, for all of these sort of like issues of communication, these sort of like uh, semiotic misfires happening on stage. Uh, And that's sort of my gesture towards like the impossibility of communication, but also uh, the necessity of it. Um, in this particular art form, yeah. And the play is also exploring on another level, it's exploring issues around censorship and uh, kind of uh, the complicity of uh, tech giants and IT companies in censoring people in China, for example, as well, which is a fair, in this day and age, is a fairly sensitive subject. We've literally just heard in the last 24 hours about um, uh, 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 a family in China uh, being threatened by the Chinese government because their son here in Australia attended an anti-Chinese protest. We've seen uh, um, a, a symbolic wall of protest at a university torn down overnight by mysterious men dressed in black. Yeah. So uh, this is a, a politically tense time yeah. and this is a politically tense issue. Talk to us about, can, do you have any concerns around exploring some of these themes, knowing that perhaps the Chinese government will be going, what is this playwright saying? <laughs> I mean, uh, I try and make very clear in the play that uh, the play really distinguishes between sort of like China and people in China and the Chinese government. Um, and also uh, the sort of, uh, I try as a playwright not to uh, proselytize or make overly didactic statements about what I think about certain things and just ask questions about them. And uh, one of the central questions in the play is sort of like, uh, what's the difference between how people feel in China about censorship and what the Chinese government feels about censorship? And also, uh, how complicit are American corporations uh, in the, the the very mechanisms that allow for this kind of censorship to happen in China? Um, and also, you know, what is the role of people in the diaspora um, people who are Chinese American, for example, people who are Chinese Australian, and how do they uh, relate to the issues that are ongoing in those countries? And again, like I just, I hope that when people come see this play, they'll realize that it's it's a much more complex issue than I think. Even like in the Australian media, we really uh, are giving time and space to properly discuss and think about. Yeah. Speaking of the diaspora, you're from Melbourne, but now based in the USA. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up here, uh, 
And I don't sound like I grew up here. Uh, I was uh, raised between Thailand and the Philippines, and I went to international schools. And then, but I spent the bulk of my life in Melbourne. And I really, uh, my dad's Australian. I strongly identify as Australian and Thai, and now American. Um, so I am very diasporic myself, uh, and that has uh, given me a really interesting relationship to Australian politics, and also to uh, my sense of myself as an Australian. Um, and uh, that's something that you know, the sort of like cultural liminality that I exist in always sort of bleeds into my work because uh, it's just the way that I live as this sort of weird global citizen. <laughs> and it's not just that you're a weird global citizen, but you're kind of, yes, you're a playwright, but your creative practice also includes sound design, 2D animation, kind of the, the uh, dramatic possibilities of technology and so much more. So you have a kind of, uh, this, as you said, a, a, you live in this kind of liminal space as, as a person, but also as an artist. Yeah. On the show just last week, uh, uh, one of my guests was Alison Crogan, who oh, yeah. has got a new play that's just opened last night, which I saw and very much enjoyed working with the rabble at the Malt House. Uh, but she's also a poet and she's a librettist for opera and she's a critic. She described herself as having a difficult brand, in inverted <laughs> commas. Would you say that you similarly have a, a difficult brand given yeah, definitely. the breadth of your practice? I mean, yeah. And it's, you know, I've only really functionally been a playwright for like a year and a half um, and have been sort of grappling with people sort of trying to easily reduce my practice to one field um but i think it's all uh interrelated and sort of like being an artistic polymath is actually part of uh why i do it you know because i get to activate different parts of my brain and it's so interesting to me that people try and sort of uh assign you one medium when theater is such a necessarily multidisciplinary medium you know and it's such a collective medium yeah in terms of that multi multidisciplinary practice that you have, how has it informed uh, the script for Golden Shield? In terms of, are we uh, should we be going into the theatre expecting that your interest in I don't know uh, in in design uh, and projection and animation is going to be reflected on stage? I mean, there is a very very uh, present uh, video component to this uh, production, but I think you know, in terms of my practice uh, now as a playwright. Uh, the the biggest thing that my sort of like multidisciplinary background has informed is this sense of like I am trying to be very responsive to what's happening in the room and to the needs of the production and to the actors on stage and to my creative collaborators and that means that you know even the text that you see on stage first preview uh, or through opening night will be very different from the text that we publish um, because uh, I'm not I'm not a very uh, I'm not precious about the writing basically I think. It's much more like this palimpsestuous uh, living text that then we embody uh, as a group. Um, and I think that's the thing that uh, working in lots of different mediums has, has made. It's sort of like in my uh, it's in my system now that I have to work that way. It's a, it's much more about the sort of like collaborative process. Well, and that collaborative process is so important to the shaping of a script. Uh, yeah. I just uh, last weekend I went up to Sydney to see uh, the Torrents, mm. uh, the kind of Black Swan and SDC co-production. Yeah. Which when it won an award back in the 1950s was promised kind of development uh, and a production and it never got it. Mm. Uh, so Ariel Gray's uh, uh, name is much less known than it should be. Yeah. Uh, the version performed on stage, I'm sure, is quite different to Ariel Gray's original script. And it's that process of actors breathing the words into life and a director working on it and a dramaturg working on it to to sculpt the work into its finished form. Totally. And, uh, 
that form, as you said, will continue to evolve mm. o- even over the run itself. Yeah. Um, how kind of hands-on are you in terms of working in the rehearsal room with director Sarah Goods and the cast? Yeah, very hands-on. Um, you know, sort of like making live rewrites constantly and, and, and getting feedback from the cast as well. Like I feel I never want someone to have to deliver a line on stage that they – uh, don't kind of invest in or don't understand. And I think that, and also I learn things from people's performances, you know, um, and learn things about the way that uh, Sarah, you know, through staging it, um, once it's embodied, you discover things that you couldn't have discovered when it's on the page. So uh, I've been there the whole time and I, I, that's, that's what I get a kick out of actually. You know, I don't want to just like write a document and hand it off. I want to be there in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Watch it come to life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the things, as I was saying at the, the start of the program with uh, uh, interviewing a couple of visual artists, uh, Kieran Begley and James Newen, talking about the fact that there's the myth of the solo creative, mm. but so much of the art that we actually see and uh, consume and appreciate is as a d- direct result of collaboration. Exactly. And, and theatre is perhaps one of the most collaborative art Yeah. Forms. And it's very, you know, I think it's very interesting in Australia in particular that there is a sort of auteur culture here. Um, I mean, that's probably true in most places in the world, but I think the sort of director auteur culture is still very alive and well in Australian theatre culture. Um, And it's also, unfortunately, like a very uh, white male construct, um, auteurship. And so part of what I try to do in my rehearsal rooms is sort of break down that idea that it's, uh, it's a singular sort of genius artist who is then sort of like imbuing the work and people are just sort of their lackeys and, and performing that, someone's vision. It's actually like a process of collective creation. And wouldn't you rather do that? <laughs> yeah, it's just better that way. <laughs> now, uh, the play Golden Shield, uh, which is running from the 12th of August until the 14th of September, uh, uh, has been in development for a couple of years. Yeah. How much has it evolved and changed from your kind of perhaps your very first draft to the, the draft that the actors are working yeah, with now? Yeah, um, enormously. <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, yeah, I, you know, because it's such a huge play and it's also based on a number of real events and has evolved uh, uh, through, like, it, not not just, you know, um, because of like more and more research that I've done, but as uh, it, the global uh, events around these issues have evolved, I've tried to sort of like be adapting the play uh, in response to like geopolitics. So uh, uh, it's changed a lot. Um, and it's been sort of amazing to have MTC beside me in that journey and actually like giving me the time and space to just focus on a single play um and also like having dramaturgical support from them throughout to be like okay you're like getting very much in the weeds of your insane research can we like bring you back to like sort of the essential truths of this story and and how we're going to actually bring it to life so yeah it's been amazing in terms of what audiences can expect when they come to see golden shield are there any how would you describe it is it uh, reminiscent of other other playwrights work for example are there influences that people can uh, to, to give people a, a kind of context as to what style of theater they people can expect sure I mean on one level it is this sort of like very big fast-paced political legal thriller um, in the manner of I mean I don't want to compare my writing to like David Mamet or Ayat Akhtar but it's sort of uh, it is it is this sort of very uh, muscular fast uh, political thriller um, but at the same time there's this very there's a number of very like sort of simple humane stories at the center of it um, I think that people can expect to hear language in a way that they've probably never seen on stage before in way in the way that the play is so bilingual but uh, 
is mediated by this narrator figure. Um, and, and I think that it, it ends up being quite a, uh, a simple human story at the core of it, even though it is this sort of like big global epic thriller. Yeah. <laughs> if you've just tuned in, my guest is uh, Anjali Felicia King. We're talking about her play Golden Shield, which is uh, the first play to result from the next stage uh, commissioning and playwriting development process at MTC. Now, one of the unfortunate things about the world is that White men are given lots of opportunities to fail again and again and again. <laughs> uh, young women of colour are put into a position like this. Uh, and there's a, presumably there's a, a lot of pressure on you to succeed. This has to be your chance to succeed. And if the play is unsuccessful, there could be some repercussions for you and other young women of colour. Mm. Uh, whereas if you were a young white male director, it's kind of like, oh, we'll just give you another go yeah. and then another go. So do you feel that? Are you aware of that kind of pressure? I mean, it's interesting. You know, I just went through this process in London at the Royal Court where uh, I had my first ever production uh, on the main stage, which was an enormous amount of pressure. And uh, I learned a lot from that experience just in terms of like, uh, I have decided for myself to not focus on sort of the needs of uh, the institution or, or the way that the plays respond to and just try and make things with sort of like moral and artistic integrity uh, and then deal with the consequences as they come. Because trying to uh, psych yourself out uh, in terms of like letting the pressure get to you actually sort of, I, th I think it's stimming. It doesn't, it doesn't help you as an artist. Um, and so, yeah, I just try and make the best work that I can and trust in my collaborators and then, uh, yeah, and then move forward from there. I know that that's sort of like not a very sensational answer, but I just try to focus on the work. I'm very much looking forward to seeing the work when it opens next week at the MTC. The play is called Golden Shield uh, and it's running uh, in previews from the 12th of August, then opening next Friday night and running through until the 14th of September at the South Bank Theatre, the Sumner, just off St Kilda Road around the corner from the NGV, if you're not familiar with the building. Uh, you can get tickets at mtc.com.au or call 866 double eight oh eight double o that's eight six double eight oh eight double o or mtc.com.au to buy tickets to see uh Anjali felicia king's golden shield the latest production from melbourne theater company thank you so much for joining us here at triple r yeah thanks for having me this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more Check out our website at rrr.org.au.